it's very nice to sit with you all and start our day together like that. Something different that happens when we sit with the community. And whether it's, you know, some magic or it's just uh, the uh, environment, uh, it can be more difficult. Sometimes I find it more difficult to sit still with the group. Um, But um, it's got the, uh, certainly the effect of at least... um, the peer pressure <laughs> to uh, not give up, and uh, but also, of course, just the idea that we're sharing something and that uh, we're not alone. Um, and maybe some collective energy as well. So uh, I'd like to just start at this point with some. See if there are any questions about practice. That's. I, I really like to engage on that uh, fundamental level as to what challenges or issues people might have as they're meditating. And, and you know, perhaps, um, I don't know if my guidance, you know, if you followed it or not. I, you know, I know oftentimes when I'm listening to a guided meditation, my mind just wanders off and I don't hear it. So, um, but uh, if you were kind of following along, if that uh, illuminated anything or confused anything, uh, happy to just you know engage whatever whatever comes up for people. And if you don't ask questions, you'll see subjected to whatever I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Comment. If you use the mic, yeah. Thank you. <coughs> Say again. And start again. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it's very different. Uh, that was the first practice I did as well. TM. All right. They just instruct you. They give you the mantra, and you just repeat it to yourself. Um, yeah, and a guided meditation is kind of in real time, trying to kind of take you somewhere, kind of tra- train you, and. And obviously the things I say are coming out of my own experience as well as the teachings I've received over the years. But um, I'm trying to kind of point to things that, in my experience, often arise during the course of sitting. And so uh, hopefully to then give you tools in real time to to deal with those. And with, you know, with mindfulness, 
it is very different from TM where where my understanding of TM was that I wasn't really supposed to do anything with the distractions. I was just supposed to come back. And that's that's kind of the essence of a concentration practice, that you just keep focusing on that one thing. And with mindfulness, we're blending that approach instead of the mantra we use the breath as a concentration object, but we're blending that with this secondary element, which is this observing uh, quality of mind, where we kind of notice um, what's taking us away, and we notice the varieties of experience, whatever kind of becomes prominent, whether it's a thought or a sensation or a noise. We sort of, and we, and we particularly notice how the mind reacts to those things. So it's kind of a layered practice and it takes a while to get really comfortable with doing that because it requires this kind of uh, responsive approach to uh, rather than having just a a um, automatic like this is what I do there's kind of a discernment or a judgment that takes place like oh what's going on <laughs> and and that can become uh, a distraction in itself you know if you start trying to figure out everything that's going on or or sometimes it can turn into analyzing what's going on because <laughs> uh, our minds fall into that so in those moments we come back to the simplicity of breath like we do a, to a mantra uh, but it's kind of like, I think of it as kind of standing back a little bit and observing this field of awareness and then having the breath as a stabilizing element in the center, but then allowing ourselves to kind of see the process of what goes on. Because what and I think is at the heart of this practice is observing how we create suffering in our own minds. And this is what the Buddha taught at the Four Noble Truths. So we start to see, again, in kind of real time, how the tendency to plan or to regret or to judge that those things that we do in our own minds to ourselves create suffering for us. And when we see that and we feel it, then we are motivated to let go of that behavior, which is really at the heart of this practice, this mindfulness practice. And, and so that's what kind of distinguishes it from a, a more concentration practice where we're just trying to calm the mind and get a, f a focus, which has 
a value, and as I say, as part of this practice, has a tremendous value. But mindfulness is seen as a, a kind of uh, more uh, global or pervasive kind of practice that sees these layers of of behavior in the mind and help us to break out of those habitual behaviors. Um, I really appreciated when you said um, for meditating to be kind. Mm. And um, that was interesting because I remember the first time somewhere along the line when I meditated with Sharon Salzberg and she said, we're meditating not to be better meditators, like what you said, to say, yeah. but to be better people. So I remember reading that, thinking, well, that's kind of weird. That can be taken the wrong way, shall we say. Yeah, or many ways. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so I appreciated when you said that, and also towards the end, I didn't hear a lot of what you said at the beginning. some practice here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to kind of the first thing you said about practice, trying to be kind to ourselves, it's been very interesting as I've started to really turn my teaching focus towards this topic. certain themes kind of have emerged that that have always been in my teaching but they've really taken the forefront and and one of them is this tendency for us to try to achieve or compete or or, uh, be good enough you know to be better better people better meditators to do it right all of this stuff which is They are useful attitudes in the marketplace, you know, in the work 
in work life and and in a capitalist society and all of that you know it's part of it surviving you know, trying to be a good student getting good grades so you get into a good school so you get a good job and blah 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 doing a good job at work trying to learn to be the best person at your job that you can be and all of that those are useful tools and they're tools that need to be thrown out the window when we come to New York Insight, you know, and that's hard to do because we're trained to, you know, okay, I'm going to learn this, then I'm going to get good at it, and then I'll be, you know, great, you know, and that very attitude undermines the actual, the whole practice that we're doing here. (laughs) So all of a sudden you're like thrown into this whole different orientation and it takes a while. Um, to to break out of it and and I think uh, I I don't know I mean obviously I can't go into everybody's mind and know where they are with it but I think that some people maintain that attitude for a pretty long time as meditators till they finally realize that it's not what they're supposed to be doing so I'm trying to make it very explicit <laughs> you know where I think it's implicit in a lot of the instruction I'm trying to make it explicit now that that's not practice. Because very often people hear the instruction, pay attention to your breath, and when your mind wanders, come back. And so what they think the implicit message is, is you're not supposed to think. When you're thinking you're doing it wrong, get back to that breath right now, young lady, you know. There will be no mind wandering in this class, you know. You could infer that from the teachings, but it's not what it means, you know. And uh, so that that's why what I try to really point to is that experience in that moment when you realize the mind has wandered, what does that feel like? and see how that's where the dukkha, where the suffering arises in that moment. That's where we're creating our suffering. So if we're creating suffering by just our thinking, then how is judging our thinking helping that? You know, because what is judging but another thought? You know? So instead, to point to the felt experience, again, something that we really have to learn, at least I certainly had to learn in mindfulness practice. Most of my experience was not a felt experience in my life. It was a thought experience. And so instead of going, oh, I'm thinking, and why am I thinking about that, and I, I should stop thinking about that, or let me, why don't I let go of thinking about that? We go, what, I ask you, what does it feel like to be thinking? What, what's in the body? What's the emotion? What's the background experience of that? And most of the time, what I find is that there is this discomfort. I've already said this, but it bears repeating because it is, to me, the core of what the Buddha taught. I see, oh, thinking is causing 
this discomfort, this agitation, some kind of disturbance in mood, it causes disturbance in my mind, causes more thinking. And if I look at the nature of that thinking, as the Buddha said, I'll discover that it inclines in two different but uh, you know, partnered directions, the direction of wanting and the direction of not wanting, desire and aversion. So these are the two main directions that thinking goes. And they're essentially this, just two sides of the same coin. When I see that, when I see that the agitation and the discomfort that's happening in my mind has the form of desire and aversion, I am seeing the second noble truth, what the Buddha taught. The first noble truth is just the suffering that I'm noticing. So when I feel the discomfort, I'm feeling the first noble truth. And when I see what's causing it, that I'm seeing the second noble truth. This is called insight, by the way. <laughs> you know, seeing these things and knowing them directly. And when I see that, nobody has to tell me, why don't you come back to the breath because you're causing yourself problems. I, I know it, right? It's like, ugh, I, I don't need to think about this. And then we have this simple instruction, oh, I come back to the breath. Not so that I can be a good meditator or a good breather, but because the breath is a refuge. The, the, the neutrality of the breath, the, the lack of content, there's no problem in the breath, unless you're having trouble breathing, which sometimes happens, but let's just assume that you're healthy. You come back to the breath and it's like, and what's happening, of course, is that you're coming back to the present moment. You're not lost anymore. And if you're paying attention to the felt experience of coming back, this isn't, this isn't necessarily play out in this exact way every time, but generally this is what you'll see. You, you'll see, oh, there's a kind of relief. And that's called the third noble truth. <laughs> when I stop being caught up in desire and aversion, there's a, a freedom that comes. The fourth noble truth is actually how that, how I create that process, how I do that. It's the way that I practice mindfulness. It's the way that I live my life. It's the way that I learn to live without staying in this cycle. It's the tools for staying out of this cycle. So the first three of the Four Noble Truths are things that we experience in real time. And those experiences are called insight, which is why Joseph Goldstein's first book is called The Experience of Insight. In the English language, that, doesn't, that title doesn't make sense. In English, an insight is a thought. It's not an experience. It might come out of an experience, but it's a thought. So, once again, we have this problem of translation. The, langu- the Pali language out of which these, these teachings come uh, 
has many terms for which there's no English translation. And so we stumble around and we call sati mindfulness, which is a pretty bad translation. We call metta loving kindness, another poor translation. And we call suffering, we call dukkha suffering. That's a very limited translation. And we call vipassana insight. But again, a confusing translation because for the longest time I was waiting for this thought to come when I was practicing insight meditation, when I started practicing insight meditation. I was like, when am I going to get that insight? <laughs> like I'm going to have this revelation. I'm going to go, everything means everything. It means this or something. You know, there was going to be this thought, right? It was going to clarify everything. And I didn't understand that that was a poor translation of the word Vipassana, that I was actually experiencing insight all the time. And the only time I would realize that was when I would re be reading a book, usually Jack Cornfield or Joseph Goldstein, who were my main teachers early on, and I would go, oh yeah, I know what they're talking about. I've had that experience. And it took another 20 years before I realized that what was happening was that I was having the experience of insight that that was why I understood it already, because I'd had that experience. Um, so that's what this practice is. It's about experiencing things that then transform the way you relate to life, to the world. And anybody who's been doing this practice for a while, we do it intuitively. We know, oh, you know, it's not worth getting that angry about this thing going on, this person who's delaying my life. You know, it's not worth it. And not worth it is a way of saying, I should let go. I might as well let go. So that's the third, uh, the third noble truth, the letting go. The not worth it is seeing suffering is being created by clinging, by aversion. So, you know, one of my, uh, projects as a teacher is to show people how much they already know <laughs> that how free they already are uh, how much they already love themselves uh, and, uh, and how much they are already loving um, because again i think we set up these models of what spirituality or enlightenment or awakening or mindfulness or love are supposed to look like and we don't see what's already here. The fact that you came here today. You know, there's a lot of people who didn't come here today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what brought you here today? I believe what brought you here today is love and wisdom. You know, the insight, the knowing that Practicing Dharma is freeing and that you're on that path to, in some way or another, whether this is your first time here or your hundredth time here, the, your path led you here today. And that was an act of wisdom, a, 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 an act of um, knowing, understanding, 
And it was an act of caring for yourself, which is my translation of metta, is caring. Caring for myself, caring for others, caring for the world. You know, instead of thinking, oh, I'll go there to learn how to love. Oh, they're teaching about love. Well, I'll go there and learn how to do that. It's like, no, the fact that you want to connect on that level is an expression of love. Doesn't mean that we can't all develop more love (laughs) and be more loving and be more wise. Because uh, we know the the power of the destructive qualities of mind, the closed qualities of heart, is something that you know we have to deal with, we have to live with, and work with. And that's that's our practice. You know, that's our practice is is working with that. So, any other thoughts, questions? carry this conversation on we can um, okay well it's about 11.30 I think it's a good time to take a little stretch break be kind to our bodies and uh, I'll ring a bell in about 10 minutes and we'll come back we're, we're not practicing silence today so which we could, I'm just saying we're not. So um, feel free to connect with the other people here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.